Genesis chapter 6. The Genesis chapter 6, this morning we'll cover verses 9 through 22, which is the remainder of the chapter. Genesis chapter 6, verses 9 through 22, Noah builds the ark. The text reads this way, These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. And Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Verse 13. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms, and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. Its length, shall be, its length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its breadth, breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the inside of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind shall come to you to keep them alive. And as for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible, and gather it to yourself. And that shall be for food for you and for them. Verse 22, for a summary statement for the whole chapter, maybe the first or the most important verse in the chapter. Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. The Lord will not allow either individuals or a culture to continue on in a state of wickedness and debauchery for an unlimited period of time. God will judge rebellion against himself. God will judge rebellion, but at the same time we learn in this chapter that he will honor faithful obedience. And I think this is a critical thing for us to take away from this day, from this chapter today as we leave this place. Because we can look around the culture in which we live right now, and it can be rather depressing. The culture that we live right now is not... It's not in, in submission to God in any way. It's in open rebellion against God. It's, in many ways, we can sympathize with Noah. Our culture is full of violence as well. But there is hope for the righteous. There's hope for the one who will righteously and faithfully obey. So we, we want to remember that. In the midst of this chapter on destruction, in fact, three chapters in a row on destruction, essentially, three chapters in a row on destruction, we need to remember that God will honor faithful obedience. It doesn't necessarily mean that you will be plucked out of the destruction. If the United States has economic problems, you may be right in the middle of it. But God's going to honor your obedience. And he's going he's to rescue you through trials, not necessarily from trials. But we don't want to get so negative and down about this passage that we think it's just all negative, all hope is lost. All hope is not lost. You're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You should have a confident expectation of the future. God loves you. He loves you deeply. He considers you to be his inheritance. We have an inheritance from God, but God considers you to be his inheritance. That's how much he loves you. For God so loved the world, and that includes you, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. If you come today and you don't know the love of God, if you've never personally trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life, oh, I pray that for you today. It would be the best Christmas present you could ever receive. Far better than a Lexus with a red bow in the driveway. As nice as that would be. But far, far better than that, because that Lexus with a red bow five years from now is going to be out of date, or ten years from now, whatever it may be. Or the Mercedes, or whatever the nice commercial is. Or the, the, the commercials that make my daughter nauseous, all the jewelry commercials at, at Christmas time. Whatever it may be, all that stuff is just going to be old stuff someday. Your eternal life is going to be forever. That's why they call it eternal. It should go without saying that those who are the recipients of grace, and that's all of us, have a responsibility to walk in fellowship with the one who provides that grace. Noah is an example of someone who did that. Since all human beings have been the recipients of grace, then all are included in this mandate. Every human being has the responsibility to walk in fellowship with God. And you may say, well, what about those who have not trusted Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life? They have a responsibility to turn to God. Because they too have been the recipients of grace. It's called common grace. That's the kind of grace that is poured out upon all mankind. All have a responsibility to turn to our Savior, to stop the rebellion and turn to our Savior. If you've already turned to your Savior in faith, then we need to walk in faithful obedience. If you haven't ever turned to him in faith to begin with, then that's the first step for you. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. There are three primary human characters that we're introduced to as this narrative of Genesis unfolds. First, of course, was Adam. Now we are introduced to Noah. And the third major character will be Abraham. And Abraham pretty much takes it for the rest of the book. At least Abraham and his descendants, his close descendants, will be taken uh, that way. There's much said in the scriptures about Adam, but little said about the intervening centuries, perhaps millennia, between Adam and Noah. And then we're going to have quite a bit said about Noah. And then there will be relatively little said about the intervening centuries between Noah and Abraham. It's interesting in the genealogies, Noah comes right in the middle, exactly in the middle, between Adam and Abraham. So you have these three people in the beginning of the Bible that are extremely important from, a, from the human perspective. Adam, Noah, and then Abraham. And again, the rest of the book from chapter 12 on is essentially about Abraham and his family. In Noah's 600th year, 600 years old, a, through a devastating flood, God wipes out those who are in rebellion against him. And only Noah and his family will survive. I'm enough of a realist to know that even if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus, you've heard this story before. This is not going to be new information. At least the, the main storyline, what they call, the, almost in, in literature they'd almost call it a meta-narrative, but not exactly. But the main storyline here, I think everybody has pretty much the idea. The earth became rebellious and God judged it and saved Noah. I know, I know that you know that. 
But there are some details in this passage you may not be aware of or may not have thought of in quite some time that I think if we'll, if we'll really grasp these details, it'll help us to have a fuller understanding, a, more, a better appreciation of what's going on here and what the Holy Spirit is, is attempting to do in this passage. It's interesting to note Peter's use of the flood narrative. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, he says this there, at least Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes that Noah and his family were saved through water. They were saved through water in the Peter passage. In Genesis, we find that the family, Noah and his family were saved from water. Interesting difference, subtle, but it is a bit of a difference. Peter's conclusion is that the same waters that decimated the unbeliever will deliver the believer. It's the same event. Now, remember that. Remember that if times get tough in the United States. The same event that may be used of God to discipline a nation in rebellion against him can be used to rescue you. Now, that's a different thought than we have sometimes. We get so wrapped up in, in in the event itself that we don't realize that the event itself can be, watch, be careful, a blessing to you and me. Perhaps God is using that event itself to draw us back closer to him because he knows the clock is ticking on every one of us. There's only a certain amount of time each of us have. And none of us need to be off in the tulies, smelling the daisies away from where God is. So the same discipline, the same judgment that's going to wipe out the unrighteous is going to save Noah and his family. Don't forget that if and when, and I believe it's more likely when, times get difficult in the United States. Precious little is said in the Genesis narrative about Noah's interaction with his contemporaries. Precious little is said. Now, you may have, you may have heard a lot in Sunday school. You may have heard a lot in different sermons about Noah interacting with the people of his time. But precious little is said in the scriptures themselves. And that's opened the door for people to fill in quite a few blanks. Many people have filled in quite a lot of blanks with regard to Noah and his interaction with the contemporary culture. Some see the violence that is reported here in verse 11 and assume that God had to supernaturally protect Noah from the people that were around him. Luther, for example, wrote, more than one, and I quote here, more than one miracle was necessary to prevent the ungodly from surrounding him and killing him. Josephus, the historian, imagined that, and I quote here again, Noah felt threatened for his life and fled the country with his family. Well, perhaps. The text doesn't say, it doesn't tell us any of that. And when the text is silent, we should consider doing the same. Filling in the blanks makes for some really interesting preaching. But I wonder if it makes for edifying preaching. So we need to be very, very careful there. Sometimes I know it frustrates you when you say, I don't know, the text doesn't tell us. Because maybe your Sunday school teacher or a radio teacher has gone and waxed eloquent about filling in some of the details, but we really need to be careful. There are so many details that are revealed. Let's focus on those. Let's don't try to fill in too many that aren't. Now, there is a detail that is revealed. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter there, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, don't ever forget that, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls Noah, and I quote now, a preacher of righteousness, end quote. That could mean that Noah preached to the repentant, to repentance to the wicked of his day. And, and you see, I've seen drawings of that where Noah would be out, his sons would be working on the ark, and Noah you know, almost had a 
some sort of text and he was preaching to the people as they walked by. It could mean something like that. But the proclamation could have simply been the testimony of building a rather big boat out in the middle of nowhere. That would preach righteousness as well. It, 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 when you build a boat like that in the middle of nowhere, it's, people are either going to listen to what you have to say or they're going to consider you insane, much like they had to deal with Jesus, didn't they? They either had to listen to his message or they had to consider him a liar or they had to consider him insane. And I think the same kind of thing could be said of Noah. Either he was preaching the truth or he was out of his mind. Now, unfortunately, by the time they had any empirical confirmation of that, it was too late for those who were in rebellion against God. But while the text of Genesis does not elaborate on Noah's interaction with the culture around him, it does draw a stark contrast between Noah and his culture. On the one hand, Noah, the text tells us, was a righteous man in verse 9, blameless in his time, and he walked with God. He was a righteous man, meaning his conduct was consistent with his position. He had, he had divinely imputed righteousness, and his conduct is consistent with that. It doesn't mean he was perfect. No one is perfect outside of our Lord Jesus Christ. But in Ezekiel 14, the text tells us, Then the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel saying, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness, and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy it, to destroy, destroy its supply of seed, send famine against it, and cut off from it both man and beast, even though these three men... Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst by their own righteousness. They could only deliver themselves, says the Lord. Noah is placed right alongside Job and Daniel in terms of righteousness. Now, not in terms of imputed righteousness. We all have the same imputed righteousness. God's righteousness is God's righteousness. This is talking about behavior that's consistent with that righteousness. That's pretty serious Old Testament company noah daniel and job it's interesting to me when people make lists there's there's all kind of lists out there but when people make lists of the most righteous person the greatest believer of the old testament who do you hear about moses david that's david would be way up at the top of my list uh, you, you hear perhaps ezekiel or maybe daniel but seldom do you hear about noah noah's kind of a forgotten figure but noah's a very important figure he's a righteous man and also, don't miss the importance of that text. We're not going to dwell on it today, but don't miss what this says. The nation Israel was in rebellion against God. God was going to come down hard on the nation Israel. But there would be people who would survive. Those who were walking in righteousness with God, in fellowship with God, consistent with their righteousness, would survive. And you will too. If you're informed at all, you know, things, things may get tough. So this is not doom and gloom. This is just realistic. But if they get tough, you don't have to be scared. You don't have to be scared. You know where you're going. You know where you're going when this is all over. And the same God that's going to get you there is going to get you through this disaster if a disaster comes. Now, I hope it doesn't. I sincerely hope it doesn't. But anybody that doesn't realize that the potential for one is right around the corner isn't paying attention. We need to pay attention. We don't need to be like the rebellious people in this chapter that are going to get hit like a ton of bricks and then say, what in the world happened to me? Noah was a preacher, a proclaimer of righteousness, either by his words or by his works, one or the other they should have known. But Noah was also blameless in his time. Again, that doesn't mean 
that he was perfect. But it means he acted consistently with who he was in the Lord. And finally, the text says Noah walked with God. Now, the last person that we found out walked with God was a man named Enoch. And we saw him in Genesis chapter 5. When we walk with God, it means that we're going in the same direction that God's going in, doesn't it? If I'm going to walk with somebody, I've got to be going in the same direction. Because if they're going one way and I'm going the other way, I'm not walking with them. So we, we have to be going in the same direction with God. When we walk with God, it means we enjoy his company. You're not going to walk with somebody very long if you don't have to, if you're not enjoying the conversation or the company. When we walk with God, it means we're enjoying his company. Enoch did, and now we see that Noah did as well. When we walk with God, it means God's our friend. Is God your friend? Or is he, or is he just a terrible taskmaster to you? Is he, is he really your friend? Or is he just somebody up in the sky that's a cosmic puppeteer trying to make your life difficult every day? How do you view God? If you're walking with him, he is your friend. In fact, he's your best friend. Not just in an emotional way, but I'm talking about in a real way. In a a way that involves the entirety of your being. When we walk with God, he is our friend. He is continually in our thoughts, just like any other person who's become extremely important to us will be continually in our thoughts. God is continually in our thoughts. When, our, when we walk with God, when a person is accustomed to walking with God and sin enters into the life, that person will find no rest until the problem is confessed and taken care of and repented of and corrected. Marcus Dodds describes it this way, walking with God is a persistent endeavor to hold all of our life open to God's inspection with conformity to his will. That's, I just uh, I must note this. You can be a saved person and, a person and not necessarily a person who's walking with God. In fact, I think all of us would sadly admit that describes, describes us far too much of the time, that we are saved, but we're not really walking with God in the way that Enoch did, in the way that Noah did. So you can be saved and not walking with God, but that's not what this passage is talking about today. So on the one hand, we have righteous Noah. Noah, a man who was righteous, who was blameless in his time, and a man who walked with God. On the other hand, on the other hand, God evaluates the culture that Noah lived in as corrupt. While Noah acted righteously, those around him acted in rebellion against their creator. And one manifestation of that rebellion was unrestrained violence that there could be other manifestations of rebellion against God, and oftentimes there are. But one manifestation of rebellion against God is unrestrained violence. You have what I want. I'm stronger than you. I'm going to take it from you. I was listening to a debate not too long ago between John Lennox and um, uh, Richard Dawkins. Richard Richard Dawkins. And I thought Lennox made a, a great point in that debate. Because Dawkins was talking about this righteous behavior and this righteous behavior and how Christians weren't acting righteously here and how Christians had acted in an evil way there. And Lennox just stops and says, well, hold on, in, in your previous works, because of your atheistic worldview, you don't, really, you don't really have categories for good and evil or for right and wrong. So why would you say that what the Christians did in the Crusades was wrong? You, you don't have that kind of category according to your worldview, according to your philosophy, of course, Dawkins went apoplectic at that, as he does some. He freaked out. Is what he did. 
But he said, I do too have a basis. And he said, what's your basis then? If God doesn't exist, what's your basis? Darwin gives me my basis. Well, let me tell you what Darwin's basis is. Let's just get right down to where we live. This is Darwin's basis. The strong survive. It's survival of the fittest. And if survival of the fittest is your worldview, why wouldn't it be filled with violence? Because if survival of the fittest is your worldview and I'm hungry and you have food and I don't, I'm going to go take that food from you and I'm going to wipe you out. If there's no God, and, it's, and, and Darwin is the, is the determining factor in morality, for goodness sakes, that's, that's insane that Darwin is a standard for morality at all. His philosophy argues against the concept of morality. And that's what's happening here. That's what's going to happen in our culture, too. If we have unrestrained Darwinism, we will have unrestrained violence because the strong will conquer the weak. In Darwinism, benevolence is not a virtue. It's a weakness. Love is a weakness in Darwinism, if you properly apply it. Now, they don't like to do that because they see it, it destroys their worldview. But that's a weakness in Darwinism. So in this culture, in people, with people who are in total rebellion against God, it shouldn't shock us that they're going to take what they want, whether it's food or whether it's money or whether it's someone of the opposite sex. They're going to take what they want to gratify their most base needs. Rebellion, remember, is self-centered. When I rebel against God, I am being self-centered. It makes sense when self-centeredness takes over that violence is going to reign supreme. For if it's really all about me, if there is no afterlife, if there is no God setting the moral standard for this earth, if it's all about me, then I'm going to simply take what I want. And I'm going to use whatever means are at my disposal. Now, it may not be brawn. Maybe people I would have to use brain to do it. But I'm going to use whatever means at my disposal to take it from you, if it's all about me. But in Christianity, it's not all about me. Really, Christianity is all about Christ, who says it should be about him and then loving those like he loved them. In verses 13 through 22, these verses report God's pronouncement of guilt and the sentence that God gives as a result of that guilt. And remember, the Lord will not allow either individuals or a culture to continue on in a state of wickedness or debauchery for an unlimited period of time. God is patient with his creation, but his patience is not infinite. His patience is not infinite when it comes to rebellion. It may be, he may be long-suffering, but there's a point in time where he says, Enough! That's all. That's all I'm going to put up with. And when that time comes, you better be on the right side of the equation. Because if, if you are, you have hope and things are going to work out okay for you. That's true. You may not live in the same house. You may not drive the same car. But can you imagine a world that would still be working out for you if you don't drive the same car, you don't get to live in the same house? Is that possible? Or have we become so materialistic in our Christianity that we can't imagine a world that we could be content in without driving the car that we're driving now or living in the place that we're living now? Or going to the restaurants that we go to now? You know, there is a world that you could be contented in if you're focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ because he's never going to leave you. And he's never going to forsake you. That's why in the New Testament the text tells us, let your lifestyle be free from the love of money. Not from money, it doesn't say that, but from the love of it. Your love should be to your Lord. Your Lord's not going anywhere. And I can promise you that. I know there's a lot of anxiety in the church today. I mean, our local church, I, I think so, but, but certainly in the church at large. You read about it everywhere you go, how Christians are really, they're really troubled. 
Well, I can see being troubled about what's going on around you, but don't be frightened of it. Don't be frightened. God is right there with you, underneath of the everlasting arms. The Lord is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. It doesn't matter what happens. He's there to catch you. Now, some of you are going through personal troubles even today. I know that. There are some very serious illnesses represented. Perhaps the people aren't here today, but the, the, the person who is ill has people representing them here. I know they're serious, very serious. And I know your heart is broken, but I've got to tell you the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. He's there. He walks with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Never means never. We don't have to be frightened. We don't have to be frightened. Verses 14 through 16 describe this ark. It's a big boat, big enough to do the job. The term ark as it is related to an Egyptian word. The term ark in the Egyptian sense means a box, a chest, or a coffin. Now, you know, this is not saying that the ark was a coffin. Actually, it's the opposite. But it was box-like. The Septuagint uses the term kibotos, meaning wooden box, which leaves us with a picture of a very large ship that was essentially rectangular in shape, probably flat-bottomed, and probably square at the end. So we might picture it as a huge barge. There appears to be no system in place to guide this ship. There's no rudder. And sometimes if you're in the midst of a disaster, you're going to be looking around, you're not going to find your own rudder either. And that's when you've got to realize that God's the captain of the ship. That, that he's got his hands on the rudder, and he will guide it to where it wants to go. So while there was no rudder for Noah to steer, God is going to take care of that. This ark is a huge boat. The best way I can picture it is that it's almost a football field and a half long. Now, that's a long boat. In modern terms, it's about half the size of the Queen Mary, which was an incredible, incredibly large ship. It had three decks, and uh, the point is, though, that it had more than enough room, more than enough room to take on all the animals that would need to be taken on, to take on food for all of those animals, to take on the people, living quarters for the people, and food for the people. I'm telling you, more than enough room to do all of that. Verse 17 promises that all flesh will be destroyed. Let's look at that verse. And behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh, which is in the breath of life from under the heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. Now, it does seem to be somewhat inclusive. All flesh and everything that's on the earth. So the wording of verse 17 suggests that this judgment is all-inclusive and worldwide in scope. While some postulate a local flood, it's difficult to come to that conclusion based solely on the Genesis text. Most proposals of a local flood are based primarily on geological information and scientific evaluation with a uniformitarian assumption as to the workings of the world. I want to be very tender here if I can. I understand how one would come to the conclusion that the flood was local. I, I've looked at that data. I understand 
how that could happen. And I don't think that those who hold that view are heretical. I think that's going way, way beyond the civility to call that view heretical. Some have done that, but I, don't, I certainly don't do that. That's going way, way too far. But I do believe it's a wrong view. In my view, the best understanding of the Genesis narrative is that the flood covered the entire earth. I'll go over some of the factors that were taken into my decision for that in a later lesson. As the Lord supernaturally brought the animals to Adam to name, do you remember that all the way back in the beginning? The Lord brings the animals to Adam, and they, they apparently file by him, and he names these animals. That's a lion, that's a tiger, that's an elephant, that's a horse. I'm going to call that a horse, which indicated divine ownership, by the way, or not divine ownership, but indicated a sense of ownership. God had, God had put creation in subjection to mankind. We talked about that when we studied Genesis, uh, the first three chapters of Genesis. But just as God did that with Adam, and I won't ask for a show of hands, please don't do it, but did anybody have a hard time believing that? We're, we're in the middle of this supernatural chapter. You know, God speaks and the world comes into being. You know, there's the Holy Spirit hovers over the water and, and all these incredible things happen. And he creates mankind. Mankind, and he actually, woman's going to be created as well. And then he brings the animals by Adam for him to name. Now, how many of us stopped at that point of time out? Wait a minute. Oh, hold on. I can't buy that. I'll buy the, him creating the heavens and the earth by the word of his mouth, separating the waters and you know, push, pushing them back. I can buy the separation of the great lights and the lesser lights and the sun and the moon. I'll buy all that. I'd even buy the creation of man by snapping his fingers just like that from the dust of the ground. But you've you got to be kidding me. You think that God's going to bring those animals that he just created two by two uh, for Adam to name? That's just a little bit beyond my ability to comprehend. <laughs> of course you don't do that. It's, it's a miracle. Yes, it's a miracle, but it's placed in the middle of a book about miracles. There's a lot of miracles in this book, particularly in the beginning. So no, it shouldn't be that hard for us to stop here and say, no, I don't think that could happen. Animals from all over the earth coming and filing by Noah and going into that ark, that's a little too much for me to believe then it should have been too much for you to believe earlier in the text when he filed him by Adam. I'm just saying, miracle's a miracle. I have no problem. If I believe that God created the heavens and the earth and created mankind in the first place, I really don't have any problem with the rest of the miracles. Someone once said, it, it, it's not so much, the, the, the biggest miracle is not so much the fact that Jesus turned water into wine, but the fact that he created the water in the first place. So no, this, this is a miracle, but this is what happens. This is what happens God is going to bring these animals supernaturally to Adam. So yes, even if the, Adams, even if the animals were spread far throughout the earth, uh, he, God got them there, and I really don't have a problem with that. Now, someone say, Dawkins would say, in fact, that, ma that makes me a weak-minded person because I don't have an explanation for that. Well, listen, Darwinists, if you ever hear the sound of my voice here, you don't have an explanation for how the universe got here. You don't even have the first clue about the universe, God, how God the universe got it, and you are happy to believe that. I have evidences that God has performed miracles. So I, I, don't, uh, I don't think Christians are in the at least, should not be, they don't have to be, in the least bit intellectually inferior to any other adherent of any other worldview. Now, in this chapter, in Genesis chapter 6, we see these animals are coming two by two. 
But in the next chapter, we're going to see that certain animals actually came in more abundance than that. There were some animals, certain of the animals that were deemed clean came in pairs of sevens. We don't think about that a lot, but you might wonder why in the world would there be two of all these certain kinds of animals, and then also we've got to bring seven pairs of the unclean animals. Well, if you've read ahead, and I know that you have, you know there's going to be a sacrifice when this is all over. And you could, if there's only two of them, you couldn't very well sacrifice the clean animal at that time. So, so somebody's going to get to survive, but there'll be the sacrifice at the end. So that's when, when the text tells us in verse 19, and of every living thing of all flesh. Now, this doesn't mean necessarily that God brought one of each particular kind of dog on, uh, to Noah to put on the ark. There would have only been a necessity to provide one set of dogs with the genetic potential to, to in, in the sense of microevolution, to evolve into the different kinds of dogs. You know, Christians don't have any problem with microevolution. It's macroevolution. We have a problem with a dog becoming a giraffe. I don't, I don't have a bit of a problem with, with doing some breeding and, and somehow coming up with a Doberman and a Rottweiler that are fairly closely connected genetically. So all the Lord would have had to do was bring pairs of animals that had the genetic potential to expand into whatever those animals were, whether they were cats or dogs or giraffes. But a dog is not going to turn into a giraffe, so there had to be dogs and giraffes. And people ask about the dinosaurs. This is as good a time as any to say, I believe there were dinosaurs on the ark. He wouldn't have had to bring every kind of dinosaur. And I do believe, my view is, after, after the flood water subsided, I believe the Earth's atmosphere, the vegetation of the Earth was quite different than it was before, and they probably died out fairly soon after the flood. They certainly didn't exist before Adam. That's, what, that's the one thing that is theologically impossible. They came, I'm sorry, they didn't exist before Genesis chapter 1. They did exist before Adam for a short time, but it all was created in the, in the, within that six-day period. Verse 22, though, is the, is the verse I'm going to spend our concluding moments with because it's probably the most important verse uh, in this portion of the chapter. I want you to look at it with me. Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Now, the reason I picked verses 9 through 22 to cover as a unit today is, is that they are a unit. And in the first part of this unit, this Toledot section, there are several of these Toledot sections in the book of Genesis. It, it works around these. This is the Toledot of Noah that will run through the end of chapter 9. Noah is the primary character here, so he's being described. And in this verse, go back to verse 9 again, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and he walked with God. Now one might say, well, how does that look in real life? How does that work itself out? In real life, what do I have to do to be a righteous man, blameless in my time? And what do I have to do to walk with God? Well, verse 22 tells us it's a bookend. The, the, this section of the chapter starts with describing him and then ends with telling us how he got that description. You see? So in the end, Noah did. Thus Noah did. And the, the last phrase, so he did. Since the Protestant Reformation, since... Luther nailed his 95 theses to that church door. We have had as our battle cry, faith alone, haven't we? And that's legit. And we could add to that faith alone in Christ alone. We've had that as our battle cry. And so in some circles, in some Christian circles, it almost seems as though for us to use the word work 
in a sentence with the word Christ or Christianity that's not related to Christ himself, uh, we, we almost would take offense at that. Work has become, for some believers, uh, kind of a bad four-letter word. Because it is salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, apart from any work. Yes, it certainly is. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, if I was to ask you to tell me your favorite verse in Ephesians, this is probably it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, verse 9, not a result of works, lest any man should boast. Amen to that, right? Amen and amen. It's not a result of works. We've got that part. At least we should have that part. The Protestant Reformation drove that home. Salvation is not by grace through faith plus works. Heaven forbid. And by the way, James doesn't tell us that either. That's a misunderstanding of James. It's by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. The Gospel of John is the only book in the Bible that has, as its expressed purpose in the text, the evangelization of the unbeliever. Now, other books tell you how to get to heaven. That's, we're not saying that. But it's the only book that has, as its expressed purpose in the text, the evangelization of the unbeliever. And but one condition is ever mentioned for the receiving of eternal life, and that's faith. Faith alone in Christ alone. So we were right in the post-Reformation era to say, that work has no place in securing our eternal salvation. But, oh, have we made a mistake in thinking that work has no place in our lives. Because that paragraph that I just mentioned, Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, that paragraph doesn't end in verse 9. The paragraph ends with this sentence. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. This is Paul's term for someone who is a believer. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Work's not a work's not a four-letter word. It's not a bad four-letter word. That's what we've been created to do. So yes, it, is is working for Christ part of my spirituality? Yes, a thousand times. Yes, of course it is. Why is Noah described as being righteous? Because back to Genesis chapter six, thus Noah did. And not just some of the things, all that God had commanded him, so he did. We've been given the responsibility to serve. And that could also be called to work for him. It's not a bad concept. It's our responsibility. So don't let the Reformation pass by you without understanding that while it was good that we got that idea that works weren't part of salvation... Don't mistake that for thinking that now works are not a part of our life after salvation. We're expected. There's a certain behavior that's expected of us. Now, not to maintain our salvation, not to show that we earned it in the first place. That's a, I believe that is close to being a heresy. Not, not of that at all. To show him that we love him, to demonstrate that we love him. Now, there's something here that I want to close with, and I don't want you to miss it. Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him, so he did. So we've got the first and the last part that emphasize he worked. He did it. God told him to do something, and he went out and did it. But look at the middle part, because this is where we fall short too, many of the time, too much of the time. According to all that God commanded him. If I would have told one of my sons, uh, hey, listen, what I'd like for you to do while I'm gone I'd like for you to cut the yard, and I'd like for you to edge it, and if, you, and, and if there's still daylight left, 
I would like for you to sweep the driveway. Cut the yard edge it, sweep the driveway, assuming there's daylight left. Let's say I leave about noon and come back about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And the yard is cut. But it's not edged, and there's grass all over the driveway. Did my son obey me? Partially. But when it comes to the scripture, partial obedience is not considered obedience. The reason Noah was considered a righteous man, blameless in his time, and a man who walked with God, was he did it, but he did all that God had commanded him to do, not just some of it. And that's the hard part, isn't it? You can't do that without the Holy Spirit's ministry. But partial obedience is not obedience. We can't pick and choose that which makes us happy in the Christian life and say, you know what, I'm going to do this and this. I'm going to define that as being spirituality. I'm going to ignore these things over here because that just doesn't fit my grid. You can't do that. We have the scriptural revelation as a whole. And so if we're going to get through this thing, we need to do just like Noah did, according to all that God has commanded us. Hours before our Lord's crucifixion, he gathers his disciples together for one final, very poignant, personal message. He told them many things about what was to come. But one of the most piercing things that he said was, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Not you're going to pick and choose, but you're going to keep my commandments. In this chapter, we learn that God will judge rebellion. But God's going to honor faithful obedience. In the days to come, if God chooses in his sovereignty to judge the rebellion of our culture, I want us all to be like Noah. I want us to do what God tells us to do. Not just picking and choosing. Not an eclectic Christianity. Not not a cafeteria style Christianity. But truly get into his word and learn it. And live lives that are not perfect. God doesn't call us to that. He knows that that would be ridiculous. We can't do it. But lives of consistency. So that when the time has come, or if the time does come, and God uses the same disaster to wipe out rebellion, but to rescue you. If a chapter was written about you and your life some years from now, could the chapter read thus? fill in the blank with your name. Thus your name did, according to all that commanded him or her. So he or she did. That's my prayer for you. Heavenly Father, we all need help in this area. And I do pray that the indwelling Holy Spirit would have his way with us, that we would submit ourselves to him, and may we be walking with you in such a way that we would quickly recognize failures on our part, that we would not be eclectic with regard to our Christianity, but would be inclusive, and that we would understand that when God gives us a command, it is meant to be obeyed in its entirety. Father, I pray that a coming judgment would be delayed upon our own culture. That, that is my desire before you today. It's the desire, I think, of everybody in this room. We pray that you would spare us, just as you did in the Old Testament when 7,000 had not bowed the knee to Baal. But if you choose to judge rebellion in this generation, 
I just ask you, Father, that you would honor the remnant and honor those who have been faithful to you and spare them as you did Noah and his family. As we enter this Christmas season, I pray that our focus would be upon thee and your son and the miracle of Christmas and the love that you have that was poured out upon us at that time and on the cross later. We'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.